Dawn of Mantis is brought to you by Redbeard Sound. Redbeard Sound provides music production, audio editing, and live sound engineering, and is where Dawn of Mantis records our podcast. You can find Sam's information on our website, dawnofmantis.com, or at redbeardsound.com. Extra, extra, Dawn of Mantis now has a merch store. There are t-shirts, long and short sleeve, as well as hoodies. Just go to dawnofmantis.com and click the t-shirt link. And while you're there, you can check out our Patreon. All our Patreon tiers have Discord benefit. This means you can join our text chat and even listen to our podcast live as we record it on Tuesday nights. Quiet your Ever since the Earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss. But two brave, uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of Mantis. Welcome to Dawn of Mantis, a variety podcast. We've already said this on the ad, but remember, we have Patreon, we have Twitter, we have all those good things, and dawnofmantis.com. Reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Tell us what we do well. Tell us what you want to hear. We want to hear more true crime, more music. You got a strange UFO tale or whatever. Let us know. Joe, what's going on tonight? More dad jokes, more tea kettling. I am just happy to be here, boys, with you two fellas in Redbeard Sound Studios. Sam, how are you? I'm good, and uh, I'm excited because I know what this this week starts. And before we get into the extensive research that Joe has done <laughs> for the next few weeks, um, since it is Music May, mm-hmm. I'm going to hit you with a little something here. Let's do it. Introduce... Maybe some people to some music they haven't heard before. And so, I don't know. Have y'all ever heard of the Winery Dogs? No, I can't mm-hmm. say right, that well, I have. I have a playlist, and, and uh, this came on it the other day, and I was like, man, I wonder. I'm going to have to like throw this one on, on yeah, the episode this week. Let, let, just let you hear a little bit of this real okay. quick. This song's called Captain Love by the Winery Dogs. If Chris Cornell and Sammy Hagar had a baby. Oh, wow. I totally hear the Hagar. Oh, I like that. Oh, that's cool. That low back up in there with it sounds cool. That's just going back to some old school, just playing old good-ass rock and roll. I like it. Yeah, how'd how'd you find these guys? I uh, I've listened to some of their stuff, yeah. and so it kind of recycled, re, you know, recirculated on on one of my playlists. I like it. I and, like it. Uh, man, it's just freaking rocking. Yeah, good. I like it. It's a good song. Very well recorded. I mean, the, who's at the board did them justice for sure. It's 
good way to start music may buddy yeah there we go we should like drop in throughout these because we're going to be look i've done i've been doing buddy holly research for about two months and i've got almost 90 pages of notes here so this is we'll buckle in. We're gonna be we're gonna be covering Buddy Holly from the day of his birth to the day the plane crashed. Okay, mm-hmm. I love it. And it's gonna be probably a, the next month and a half, two months worth. But maybe throughout those episodes, like you just did, we pepper in since it's Music May and all things yeah. music. Pepper in a little uh, part of a uh, something that turns us on, something else that turns us on. Other, yeah, other than Buddy Holly. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great idea. Cool. I like it. Just every once in a while, a track there. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. So that was again the Winery Dogs. The Winery Dogs. Got a nice name. After, yeah, like it. that's a good name. Yeah, it is. It really is. Thank you for that. Yeah. That's no. awesome. I should add them to this. Uh, we have a we do have a Spotify playlist. If you guys are interested, we grabbed a bunch of our favorites, put it on. We called it the Rainy Day thing. It's we've added to it since the Rainy Days. If you are interested in that, that's on our Twitter. Yes, it's a very good playlist. I listened to it while I was. It is standing in the pouring ass rain at midnight at work the other night, trying to restart some pumps that got knocked out by the lightning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Praying to God that uh, lightning didn't hit again while I was holding the wires. I bet. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, man, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. This has been on the books for a long time Mm -hmm. and we are finally getting into the life and times of the legendary Buddy Holly. Now, before I even start this, I want to acknowledge the main sources for all this information other than, you know, archival footage and old newspaper articles and documentaries and and YouTube videos. The two main uh, sources of information are two biographies. One is called Rave On, the biography of Buddy Holly by Philip Norman. And the other one is called uh, Remembering Buddy by John Goldrosen and John Beecher. So without cool. those two books, I wouldn't have got half this good stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so the importance of Buddy Holly to rock and roll cannot be overstated. His incredibly brief life and short career produced a catalog of original material that would go on to be adored by millions around the world. From the first single release of That'll Be the Day to the day that Buddy died was only 21 months. So his professional career was not even two years. Wow. Yeah, I think That's people crazy. don't realize that. Yeah, that, I didn't realize that. But within that short time, he released three studio albums, toured all over the world, and had seven songs in the top 40 charts. He massively influenced artists for decades after his untimely death, and his music helped shape an entire genre. Not only was Buddy's music innovative, but so was his approach to the music and his process. He was the first to overdub recordings with guitar and vocals, one of the first to rely almost exclusively on his own material instead of using outside songwriters and composers, the first to use symphonic strings on a rock record, and the crickets were the blueprint for the combo rock band. Three guys, three instruments, splitting everything equally. Hmm, Wow. Just a few of the artists who have cited Buddy as a major, if not main, influence are Bob Dylan, John Mellencamp, Eric Clapton, Graham Nash, and the Hollies, John Fogarty, Elvis Costello, Levon Helm, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, the Rolling Stones, and the Beatles. The Hollies named their band after Buddy. And uh, the first hit the Rolling Stones had was a cover of Buddy's song, Not Fade Away. And the first song the Beatles ever recorded, back when they were the Quarrymen, was a cover of Buddy's hit, That'll Be The Day. In fact, when they first appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, the first thing John Lennon asked was, is that the same stage Buddy Holly played on? 
The Beatles had even come up with their insect-themed name in honor of Buddy's crickets, and Paul McCartney would later go on to purchase all of Buddy's publishing rights in 1976 and establish an annual event called Holly Days, where people from all over the world gathered to honor the rock and roll pioneer. I'm afraid to even ask a question because it's probably going to get covered in this. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the thing, you know? Like, Jump in anytime. Jump, because this doesn't need to be, be me just reading. My first thought is, how did he come up with the crickets? We Okay, uh, we will get to it, but I'll tell you now, too. We'll get to it twice. Um, they basically just, there was other groups around, like mostly R&B groups that had cool names, mm-hmm. kind of like insect themes and other different types. And uh, they pretty much just got out a, an encyclopedia and was just flipping through bug names. Okay. And they almost settled on, what was the other one that they almost, This I shit you not, this is according to J.I. Allison, the drummer himself, who founded it with Buddy, who founded the Crickets. Uh, they almost went with the Beatles. Uh, wow. <laughs> but then they thought, you know what? The Beatles, uh, a beetle is just a little bug that crawls around. Crickets make music with their hind legs. Oh, they make, oh, it's such annoying uh, noise. I, I would have, I would have rather them be the June bugs or anything than the crickets. Because Buddy I, Holly and the June bugs. I hear a cricket and I'm like, where is that come thing? It was almost Buddy Holly and the Beatles, though. It's huh. isn't that a strange thing? But see, there's a. Then what would have happened? I mean, the quarrymen are. I mean, it's like, how would they have? I don't know. Right. What would they have been called? What if they would have went with the crickets? It was like, well, the bait is already taken, so as you go to the crickets. I don't know. Who knows? Wow. But there's an urban legend, I guess, was what you'd call it, that they called themselves the crickets because at the end of one of their recordings, there was a little cricket that was making its noise. So that is true, that there was a cricket that they left on a recording, but they already had their damn name. And so anyway. Wow. Oh, okay. Thanks for clearing that up because I, I don't like that little things like that still exist i mean urban legends are cool and to the point to where it's like hey did you know that's bullcrap oh it is i'm gonna quit telling it that's <laughs> no. that's because I, I think that's what humans should do is like learn and move on yeah. don't keep telling the same urban legend now that it's been you know, no perfect. kidding yeah that's and I, cool. I want to take that back i can't remember because buddy recorded a lot even before the crickets so I can't remember if that if the cricket on the recording if they had their name crickets or not yet. So okay. I, I don't want to say anything inaccurate on here. So I'm going to take I'm going to withdraw that. <laughs> you probably got it written down in there. I, it is. It's in there. I just haven't. It's it's somewhere in these in almost ninety pages. Something I was going to say earlier to me. You know, this is obviously all about Buddy Holly, but a major part of us doing this is just the footprint that he left on the music industry and how he changed so many things. I mean, all of it's interesting, but I really love that part because I like, I love to see when an artist is like, I was inspired by this guy or this girl. That's really cool to me because I just imagine a kid listening to something and then 10 years later, they're famous. Oh. You know, I, I think that's really cool. And Tom Petty, you, you, you told me this, Tom Petty had that line where he said, somewhere there's a guy in his bedroom on a guitar writing the next whatever. How yeah. That, yeah. I can't remember exactly how it went, but yeah. And that's true. Yeah, that's cool to think of, even though it's it's super obvious and we should, oh yeah, of course that is true, true. but but you don't think about that kind of stuff all the time. In fact, yeah, when he said that, Greta Van Fleet may have been, you know, like sure. just starting out or who knows. Yeah. Oh I yeah. Mean, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. So obviously Paul McCartney's a massive fan and along with all those others. Um, Buddy Holly placed 13th on Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. And he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986 and given a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award a decade later. 
It's been 62 years since the day the music died, and that's a long damn time. Buddy didn't live in the era we enjoy now, when whichever artist you happen to be into is totally accessible, with thousands of pictures, music videos, TV interviews, TikToks, tweets, magazine articles. Unfortunately, all we have left of Buddy in that regard are a few dozen photos, mostly in black and white, and some grainy, rickety-sounding videos of the few rare television appearances he got the chance to make before his life was snuffed out in that frostbitten Iowa cornfield. Because of this, today, Buddy Holly seems more like a character in folklore, or some mysterious specter than a human being, and that is nearly as big a tragedy as his premature demise. Because Buddy would be the first to tell you, and he did tell many, I'm just a guy from Lubbock who loves to make music. Behind the iconic image of his horn-rimmed glasses, curly charcoal hair, and wide toothy grin, laid a flesh-and-blood human being who had a family he was extremely close to, a recently wed wife he was desperately in love with, and a baby on the way for which he was excited beyond words. And despite the fame and success he already achieved, he hadn't even scraped the surface of his musical aspirations. I mean it when I say that the death of Buddy Holly is the very definition of a tragedy. For sure. While doing this research, I spent countless hours reading multiple biographies, listening to music, digging up old staticky AM radio interviews, and watching his few recorded televised performances over and over again. It sounds crazy to say, but after a few weeks, I almost felt like I knew the guy. Not the legend we all picture, poised on the stage in a gray suit, one leg planted in front of the other, strumming at that sunburst Stratocaster as if he were trying to saw it in half. No, I mean the man behind the legend. Because even for those of you who aren't fans or don't know who he is, his life is a fascinating story. A short-lived whirlwind in which he packed several lifetimes into his 22 brief years. By the time I was done with my research on Buddy, I felt like I was doing a story on a close relative I had lost or something. Instead of a rock and roll cultural icon who's been gone for over six decades. Buddy's appeal was totally unique. Sure, everyone loved Elvis with his smoldering good looks, gripping stage presence, and almost godlike charisma. But here was this tall, lanky kid with glasses from the middle of nowhere who could rock as well. And even more than Elvis, this kid wrote his own songs and played his own solos. Buddy was incredibly relatable and suddenly made an entire generation feel like if Buddy could do it, maybe they could too. I know four kids in Liverpool who said it made them feel that way. So I've rambled on with my adoration long enough for now. Let's get into the incredible life of Buddy Hall. Very well done. I love the guy. Yeah, I could tell. If you can't tell, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 well written. I mean, it. it you know, I ho- hopefully you guys get on get in on the first episode because that gives you the why. Why are we doing this? That's why. Yeah, and it's very good why. And like I said, even if you aren't familiar with his music, it's a really fascinating story for sure. Okay, so Buddy was actually born Charles Harden Holly on September 7th, 1936. The family he was born into consisted of his father, Lawrence Odell, better known as L.O. You'll notice that everyone in Texas back in those days, and maybe to this day, go by their initials. There's a lot of initials in this story. Okay. (laughs) So his dad was L.O., his mother was Ella, oddly enough. He had two older brothers, Larry and Travis, and one older sister, Patricia. His family was of modest means and often struggled to make ends meet, but one of the things Mr. and Mrs. Holly always made sure their children had, other than the essentials, of course, were musical instruments. You see, for the Hollies, as well as most other West Texas families in those days, music ranked right up there with God, guns, and patriotism. Most families, at least, had a few members who could play one or several instruments, 
impromptu hoedowns broke out regularly at family get-togethers, and obviously music played a large part in ch- every church service unless you were Church Christ. That'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. That'd make you want to go to family get-togethers. Yeah, for sure. You know? Most of the time, I hated going to anything, <laughs> uh, you know, any kind of family get-together. But, yeah, whenever it's just kind of expected that they're going to break out into some, oh, yeah, let's get out the, get out the instruments and do some jamming. Like, mm-hmm. that'd be... So much fun. It would be. It would yeah. be great. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I grew up like that. That's how my grandfather and my uncles were um, when I was small. It it seemed like it kind of just went away when I got older, mm-hmm. when I was like 11, 12, 13. When you were somewhere. old enough to join in. Yeah, almost. exactly. Yeah. I did get to a little bit, but I didn't couldn't play anything. I could play keyboard or piano just a little bit. Um, I remember one time my, I got to sit behind the drum set, and my uncle showed me a, the one and the four beat. And said, hit the bass drum on this and the snare drum on this. And that's all I could do. I was like, <laughs> but it was, I felt like a part of it. Yeah. That's really cool. One of the things I regret hugely, no one in my family was musically talented except for my dad. And then if you want to say me. So my dad had all these, had like, what, I think eight kids, right? Granddad. And then like, however many years later I come along, you know, he had tried to get all these kids interested in music and nobody really just took to it. Then I finally come along, and I didn't really take to it either until I was like 13, 14, and then I was like obsessed, and I'm in there with Dad learning stuff. He's finally, he's like, oh my God, finally some kid's learning to play guitar. Well, at their 60th wedding anniversary, which was only less than a year before my dad died, we had a big shindig. I say shindig. There was no music while I was there. Actually, I take that back. A couple of us played. I wrote a song for my parents. I played it on guitar and I sang it for him. And then a couple of my other family members like had a pre-recorded thing that they sang to, right? And then as always in those days, you guys will know, no matter where I was, like I, you know, I was just always ready to jet. I was just like young. I don't know. It was just so stupid. I have my girlfriend with me and I'm just always ready to like, oh, let's, let's just go, let's go. And so I did that. But after I left, my dad busted out his guitar and his mandolin, I believe, and uh, played and sang uh, like a bunch of songs for the family. And, you know, I mean, everyone said it was fantastic. So anyway, that's like one of my regrets that I have to this day is like, Shh, you, you moron. It's like, why didn't I stick around, you know, for once? Instead of always being worried about just going and taking off and being stupid or whatever, I could have hung around and played and, you know, with them. And it, anyway, that just brought that up. No, that's good. I, I think that's good to mention because there's people a lot younger than us listening to this. So, like, you never know when you're going to have that moment you're going to regret. So uh, think about everything. Run it through your head again. Should I leave? Should I stay? Should I spend more time with this person? Should I, you know, should I go over here for five minutes? You know, it's not going to kill me. I right. mean, those types of little things, I think everyone should have that in their head. So that's a great reminder, I think. Yeah, yeah I think I think one of my first memories of, like, getting to kind of join in on a jam session, you know, when I was young was my parents had some friends and we went over to their house. A couple of the guys were were guitar players and stuff, and they they got their guitars out and they were they were jamming. And I had a I had a harmonica with me, and I oh, think yeah. it was like in the key of G. Oh, so and, okay. And so like they were like, get that harmonica out. We'll just we'll you know. And like they played so many songs in G just for for me to be able to join in on the harmonica. And with you them. can't not make a, a harmonica sound good <laughs> well, if it's I in mean, the same key. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, like whatever you're gonna play, it's gonna be in the key. Yeah. So, you know, so like they you know, they just let me play along with them on that harmonica 
you know, and they were like, we'll do this one. And, you know, so they were just, they were just hanging in that key, no matter what the song was, they were doing it in G, so I could just, you know, play along. And so. And then was, Blues Traveler was your favorite band for right? several years. Yeah. So then I learned Hook. Yeah. So, no, I think that was kind of one of my first uh, instances of, of getting to, you know, kind of jam along with, with yeah. some of the older guys. And then, and then it went part from there to, to, um, being on drums for some of my uncle's bands and stuff whenever I was old enough to... Well, no, I wasn't even old enough to drive yet. My mom would have to drive me to... It was like Heifel Community Building. They would have like every Friday night or one Friday night a month, they would have like a jam night up there and the people from the community would come out and just watch. And That's cool. And so, um, yeah, I'd, I had a set of electric drums and I'd take them and, and I'd be the drummer for, for that. And I yeah. wasn't even old enough to drive yet, but... That's cool. That's, that's kind of my first, you know, introduction to playing in some some bands like that and music. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's just like the old help bring the young along. Yep. That's yeah. just how... Yep. That's, and, and there's a lot of things you do that with, not just music, but uh, music's just so cool. <laughs> well, yeah, my my first musical instrument I ever played in front of anybody was maracas. Oh. It was in our church. Like everybody, you know, like everybody wanted to be a part of the music part yeah. of the church. And okay. so my parents got me these little maracas. I still have one. The other one, I don't know where it's at. But I would just like shake these little maracas when I was like six, seven, eight years old. It was probably horrible. <laughs> but then when I got to be like twelve or so, maybe thirteen, the one of the people in the church gave us the old drum set out of the church, and I'm talking like. As you would play it, the toms would just fall down. They oh, would start yeah. to, yeah, because the hardware was all where it was used. So you have to pause between beats and lift the tom back up, you know? And it sounded like crap and it was just horrible. But then I started playing drums for the church. So I'm like this 13, 14 year old kid. And then around 14 or so, 15, I uh, got into a band. Uh, this is not. This is about Buddy Holly. So I need to shut up. So anyway, that's what kind of launched me into whatever. So hey, you know what though, Ivan? What's that? Those maracas then turned into a tambourine. Because this man, (laughs) I kid you not, can play a tambourine like none other. He can. You got to be really secure in your manhood to shake a tambourine is all I'm going to say. After these messages, we'll be right back. Quiet your so yeah, West Texas, all you know, most of the families had some musical abilities and they would play all the time. The Hollies were no different. In fact, everyone in the family could either sing or play an instrument except the patriarch, L.O., who would always joke that someone had to be left to listen. Buddy, as many uh, 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 youngsters of the family were called in those days, followed suit, but it took him a while to find his preferred musical instrument. When he was five years old, his brothers, Travis and Larry, had entered a talent show and Buddy wanted to join in too, begging them to let him saw away at his toy fiddle and sing along. After the boy's mother basically forced them to let Buddy participate, the older brothers retaliated by greasing the strings on Buddy's little violin so it wouldn't interrupt their performance. Regardless, Buddy played his heart out and sang Down the River of Memories. Larry and Travis did not place in the top three. However, Buddy took home the $5 first prize. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they were mad. Probably were. Probably, you know, it was just because he was freaking cute. You know, just like a cute little kid sawing away and singing that song. I mean, they were screwed. Yeah, but talent. I mean, I'm sure he had just a certain amount of talent too. Even then, probably. Yeah. I mean, if you think about uh, early Michael Jackson, I mean, it was obvious. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah you know. Yeah, for sure. And they hated him for that. I think. <laughs> 
Buddy's mom talked him into piano lessons when he was about 12, since the other boys already played guitar, and despite being pretty good, he was indifferent to the piano, but he learned quickly and he was very good. He would end up playing popular radio songs by ear and could like kind of make his own stuff up just within a few months. Uh, but the piano did not excite Buddy, like he had hoped, and within less than a year, he announced to his mother that he wanted to quit and take up guitar. Ella obliged and soon had him taking lessons, except she misunderstood Buddy and thought he'd wanted to learn steel guitar. Oh. <laughs> Very different. That's yeah. quite a bit different. After a few lessons tinkering with the lap steel, he finally approached his mother again, and this time, making himself more clear, said, I want to learn to play the guitar like Travis has. So Ello quickly went down to the pawn shop and bought a Harmony acoustic guitar, and from that day forward, Buddy was rarely seen without it. His brother, Travis, showed him a few chords to get him started, and before long, Buddy was picking along with most of the tunes played on the two most popular radio shows for any Texan at the time, the Grand Old Opry and the Louisiana Hayride. Among his favorite early Western artists were Slim Whitman, Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers, Woody Guthrie, and Hank Snow. Wow. That's some good, quite a list. Yeah. Yeah, he had damn good taste for being yeah. like a 12-year-old. <laughs> I love Woody Guthrie for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went through a phase where I was listening to that stuff all the time. Elements of many of these performers would eventually find their way into Buddy's style and songwriting and would help craft the sound that he'd later become famous for. But for now, Buddy Holly was just a kid at Roscoe Wilson Elementary School in Lubbock, Texas. But that was about to change. In their constant search for more affordable housing, the Hollies moved outside the city limits way out into the country. It uprooted Buddy from his familiar surroundings and placed him at Roosevelt Elementary, where he didn't know a single soul and missed his friends back at Roscoe Wilson. He dove even further into music and playing his guitar, even carrying it with him uh, to pick along the empty school bus rides to and from school. He did settle in eventually, but thankfully the Hollies moved right back to Lubbock, 3315 36th Street to be exact, when he was 13. This meant that Buddy got to start junior high school with many of the friends he had made back in elementary school, several of which he would uh, go on to become fellow crickets. But Buddy played in and out of several groups before forming the crickets and the rockabilly style altogether. Before we get into any more of Buddy the musician, I want to jump away from that just for a minute and talk about some other things that he was into. So Buddy loved the outdoors and enjoyed hiking, hunting, and fishing with his older brothers. He was also a master leather worker. Buddy would make wallets, belts, and guitar straps with all kinds of intricate decorative inlay and designs that impressed everyone who saw them. He also had an uncanny knack for laying tile. His brother would later say that some of the boys who worked for him could lay tile fast and some could lay tile neat, but Buddy had the ability to do it faster and keep it neater and perfectly square, more so than anybody else. Does uh, any of that leather work still exist that you know of? Uh, yes, I think, oddly enough, uh, Gary Busey bought uh, Buddy's acoustic guitar. Okay. And I'm going to talk about it in a bit, but Buddy made like an insanely cool-looking leather cover. Oh. Wow. A whole Did cover. It? Oh, wow. It's a, It covers the entire guitar and a strap, huh. but it says Buddy Holly, and it has all kinds of cool like music notes on it and guitars and all kinds of cool stuff. Wow. And last I knew, I saw a clip of... It was obviously a little while after the movie, but Gary Busey had bought Buddy Holly's guitar and he took it on Arsenio Hall and actually played it. Wow. He came walking out and Arsenio was like, what you got there? And he's like, this is Buddy Holly's guitar. And I was like, wow. You know, it's super cool. Yeah, that is. That's awesome. 
Oh, by the way, yeah. So Buddy's brothers had um, Holly's tile uh, in Lubbock, Texas. Okay. It was a tile land. Okay. Okay. I guess his brother summed it all up, uh, all these skills, by simply saying, Buddy was just as he was just good with his hands. Anything he got his hands on, he was good at. Uh, Buddy was also a car nut, and he loved motorcycles too. In fact, he drove so fast and so reckless so often that he nearly lost his license, and it's a wonder his life wasn't taken in a car wreck rather than the way it eventually was. Hmm. There's lots of stories of him driving as fast as an old Buick would go in 1955. You know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Among Buddy's first musical collaborators was a classmate named Bob Montgomery, also an older kid named Jack Neal, who sometimes worked for L.O. So Bob would play a large role in Buddy's life later on, but Buddy's first group was with Jack Neal, and they called themselves Buddy and Jack. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Jack did most of the singing, and Buddy did most of the picking, and they started playing talent shows in Lubbock and the surrounding towns and even began to write their own songs, or as Buddy put it, making up songs. They were far from the uh, creations that would later make him famous and mirrored more conventional country and Western music of the time. They also loved bluegrass music, especially that of Flatt and Scruggs and Bill Monroe. Okay. Which I do, too. Mm, yeah. yeah. That's speaking of my dad. That's what I was raised on right there, partially. I love some Flatt and Scruggs. Oh, yeah. Does any of that early work exist? Yes. Uh, well, Jack and Buddy, I don't know, because it, it would later go on to be Buddy and Bob with Bob Montgomery. Okay. And that does exist. Okay, cool. Um, Sam, you can maybe find, try to look for Jack and Buddy. I, do, I don't think I found anything. Okay. But we're going to get to, uh, there's, what's funny is Elvis landed first and became famous first, but Buddy, as far as I know, I know, I know this for sure, he recorded first and he was even on the radio first. Just because he got started so young with this stuff. Buddy picked up the banjo and learned to play the mandolin as well. The boys became fairly well known around Lubbock, but something was about to happen that would give them quite a bit bigger venue than a smoky dance hall or a stuffy auditorium. So Lubbock had forever maintained its own radio station, KSEL. But until the early 50s, it had always been easy listening and talk. In fact, that's pretty much what all radio stations were. Yes, throughout the South and even in Texas in the 40s and early 50s, there was not a single radio station that was dedicated totally to country music. That blew my mind. Yeah, no kidding. Even back then, I figured there would have been. Instead, you had country programs that would air on other stations, like the aforementioned Louisiana Hayride and the Grand Ole Opry. But there were a couple of guys who believed strongly that the country-western format could sustain its own station, and their names were Dave Pinkston, who happened to be general manager at KSEL in Lubbock, and a guy named High Pockets Duncan, his assistant manager and DJ. They railed against the station's owners and advertisers to push more country and western music on the air and even created their own version of the Louisiana Hayride that they called the Saturday Night Jamboree. And uh, High Pockets would MC as a fictitious hillbilly character he created named Herkheimer Tornsnoff. <laughs> hey, fun fact, they call me Empty Pockets Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> but boom boom, I love it. <laughs> no, you should be High Pockets Duncan too, because they called this guy High Pockets because he was tall. Mm. And you're like 6'4, dude. You are High Pockets Duncan. They also created another show called The Sunday Party. And both shows featured local talent from around the Lubbock area. This new all-country station, now called KDAV 580, debuted in September of 1953 and was on the air from sunup to sundown. 
Open auditions were advertised to find local talent for the shows, and before too long, the call was answered by a lanky kid from Lubbock High School and his older friend, Buddy and Jack. Duncan was so impressed by their short audition that he immediately booked them for a live show, where they further impressed him enough that he gave them 15 minutes to perform on the next Sunday party radio program. This was huge in the early 50s for somebody. It was only a half-hour program to begin with, and he gave them half of it. Buddy and Jack made their radio debut on November 4th, 1953, with covers of Your Cheatin' Heart, Got You On My Mind, I Couldn't Keep From Crying, and I Hear The Lord Callin' For Me. So as far as I know, that was the first time, November 4th, 1953, first time Buddy Holly was uh, on the radio, which is, uh, you know, that's a good, what, six years? That was only six years before he died, though. That's nothing. That's Crazy. Yeah, that is. I was I was totally thinking that whole timeline was stretched out more. Yeah, That's, no. Yeah. It's so compacted into just this, so much happened in such a short time. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. They went over so well on the program that Pappy Dave Stone, that's Dave Pinkerson's uh, DJ radio name, gave them the full Sunday party slot and renamed it Buddy and Jack's Sunday Party. With this came Buddy Holly's first taste, albeit a small one, of celebrity. Letters began to pour into the station from listeners raving about Buddy and Jack and requesting songs as well. What was further exciting for the boys was that the requests weren't always for the country standards they were covering. Some of them were for the original material that they'd done. So that's got to feel awesome. Yeah, it does, for sure. That was when, less than a week after their premiere on the Sunday Dance Party, Buddy and Jack got to cut their first recording. There is a recording, guys. Oh, wow. Sorry. This research was stretched out for months. Oh, yeah, I know. So from when I first started it to when I ended it, forgive me if I don't remember everything. I'm kind of rereading everything fresh right now. Yes, I'm remembering some of it, but yeah, some of these I'm like, oh, cool. (laughs) Even though I wrote it. Of the two songs they cut were a gospel standard called I Hear the Lord Calling for Me, and the second was a song written by Jack called I Saw the Moon Cry Last Night. Now, I... I haven't. I'm not going to read any more yet. I don't think that these two are available. I want to. I want to say that he he just like has the recording or the record, but it's not like it never was released. Thanks to the radio station's custom equipment, they were able to cut the songs on a double sided acetate record rather than the old reel to reel tape method. That's right. Buddy and Jack had cut their first honest to goodness real live record. When Jack Neal was interviewed about this many years later. He recalled Buddy making a statement that many others have testified hearing him make back then. And it goes as follows. It's not that I want to be in the lamplight. It's not that I want to be rich. I just want the world to remember the name Buddy Holly. He said that that to many people. Well, you got your wish. He really did. I don't know if he got it in the way that he wanted. Yeah, no kidding. During this time, Buddy and Jack added more players to their group. First was Buddy's longtime pal, Bob Montgomery who played guitar and sang, and second was another fellow classmate named Don Guess, who could play steel guitar and bass as well. And they also added a guy named Larry Welburn. This new group was called the 580 Ranch Hands, as a nod to their favorite radio station, and they began shopping for gigs in the area. Buddy assumed the position of PR man and drew up a two-page flyer advertising the band mainly to local high schools for dances and banquets. Before long... The boys were playing smoky clubs on the outskirts of town, basically clubs they weren't even old enough to get into. Now, for all this 
outward appearances of family values and good old-fashioned God-fearing hospitality, and despite being 120 miles away from the nearest legal liquor store, Lubbock had a wild side. Bootleg booze flowed freely, especially in clubs like the 16th and J, where the 580 ranch hands were regular entertainment. Jack Neal later recalled how the boys, still just teenagers, let me remind you, learned how to control the crowd and help stifle the many barroom brawls that would break out. The beer and fists would start flying, and Buddy would spin around and say, Hey, boys, we better play a two-step. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. You kill the mood. <laughs> we got to bring down the... Change the mood in here anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Not kill the mood. The boys also indulged in their fair share of liquor, including Buddy, but it was never anything he did to excess. He had been plagued with stomach issues most of his life, issues the doctors blamed on nerves. Sounds like a 50s diagnosis. Oh, the boys got nerves, you know. <laughs> and things like booze and spicy food killed his stomach, so he avoided those most okay. of the Okay. One vice that Buddy did take up, though, as just about every t- Texas teenager did in those days, was smoking. The minute he was able to, he began to buy soft packs of Salem cigarettes, although he took great pains to never smoke in front of his parents or his minister or even in photographs. There's only a couple ever taken that show him holding a cigarette. Uh, actually, the famous one with him and Waylon Jennings. Where okay. In the photo booth. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he has a cigarette in his mouth there. Oh, wow. But there's not very many at all. Hmm, it's so crazy you got to hide that. I mean, it's so crazy that he felt like he should hide that. It just shows like it's a sign of the times type type of thing. It's so weird because rock and roll, I mean, we're going to get there, but parents and the older people were so against rock and roll in those days, but we'll get to it. Other than a few exceptions like Little Richard and Eddie Cochran that they really were wild, wild child. Mm -hmm. Most of the, most of these guys wore suits. And we're really polite. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yeah. Thank you. And they even talk about on the tour bus from show to show, the worst that ever happened was like pillow fights. <laughs> like there was no booze. There was no like, you know, like a lot of their managers were so old school, like Buddy's manager that he would meet later didn't even allow him, allow him to cuss. <laughs> He's like, you, you don't take the Lord's name in vain and don't curse around him. You know, it was such a different time. And yet all these parents and were like, oh, this is Satan's minions. Crazy. It's going to cr- crumble America. I'm like, are you shitting me? I wonder that if that's why metal took the, took the, t- like the kind of way it, the way it was, you know, I wonder if that was kind of like, you know, because you had so much flack. You were pretty clean, but you were still called like a devil worshiper, you know? <laughs> then the, there are bands that came out later that are like, okay, you're going to call us that? Yeah. Here we go. That's what it looks like. Yeah. yeah. These guys are like- We're going to be what you think we are. They were clean cut with suits on and like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. It's just, you know, it's so weird how- <sighs> I just don't get it. Yeah, I don't either. Well, uh, like I said, there's only a couple of photographs ever taken, show him holding a cigarette. And it was just a respect thing for him. He was just raised up to where you just don't do that, you know, around certain people. The group played many shows in and around Lubbock and even bought an old 1937 Packard hearse that had been painted two-tone red and yellow to tour around in. How freaking badass is that? That's amazing. I don't, could you look up a 1937 Packard? Mm -hmm. I just want to know what that looks like. I have a pretty good idea, because I'm a car guy, but uh, man, I bet it was cool. Imagine seeing a, a yellow and red hearse just pull yeah. up with the band. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were a popular choice back then by 
road musicians. I mean, they even had like wheels on the floor where you could slide your amps in and out. Oh, dude, yeah, for the caskets. Yeah. yeah oh my god. Yeah. Look on the screen over there. Sorry, people. We might put a picture of one on our Twitter or something. Yeah. But... Yeah. I'll do that right now. Oh, that's boss. Look at that. Um, I did find. And I'm sure Sam found it too. I did find. Uh, uh, Jack and Buddy uh, saw the moon cry last night on YouTube. Let's play a part of that. We just talked about that. That's the era that we're in. Jack and Buddy, I saw the moon cry last night. So that was one of the two songs. Am I right? I saw the moon cry last night. That was written by Jack. And then the other one was a gospel song. So that's so cool that we're going to be able to play one of the first two recordings uh, that Buddy Holly ever did. I like it. It's very much of its time still. Mm -hmm. They're very much of their time. <laughs> but yeah, that's Buddy Holly. First time uh, Buddy Holly was recorded playing guitar. Actually, I like this a lot. That's Jack Neal singing. That's not bad, is it? It reminds me of my grandpa. Oh, yeah. It really does. Very cool, man. on Buddy in the back doing all that cool stuff. Yeah. I hear the, I think I hear the Hank Williams influence. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Especially in the way he's singing. I like it, man. That's Buddy. So he was Buddy was born in thirty six and this is fifty three. So how does that make him? Fourteen would be to fifty, so seventeen? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Seventeen years old. Yeah. Very cool, man. Jack and Buddy, uh, I saw the moon cry last night. Yeah, that was yeah. the that along with that other gospel song, the first uh, two songs ever recorded of Buddy. Yeah, cool. that's awesome. They're playing songs like that, massively popular, running around in this crazy 1937 hearse playing. Um, but unfortunately, they disbanded. Uh, however, most of the crew would stay in Buddy's musical circle. Uh, some of them for the rest of his life. Oh wow. Now, playing all those shows with the 580 Ranch Hands gave Buddy an insatiable taste for performing live. 
He was well known in the music scene at this point and would go back up groups and sit in with bands whenever he got the chance. So we'll get into that later too, but there's a lot, there's a whole catalog of music out there that people don't even know they're listening to Buddy Holly doing backing vocals or playing guitar, but he is on oh, other songs. Yeah. You know, it, it's just crazy. There's so much to get into. Which reminds me, so right now as you're going, and, and I want to work with you too later on this, like I'm starting a playlist on Spotify. Oh, okay. So we want to keep throwing in nuggets in there. So if you got something you want to put in there, and to you out there, uh, we're going to post this on Twitter and let you guys have this Buddy Holly playlist. We kind of want it to, we talked about this before the episode um, a few weeks ago, um, that we wanted to have a companion, um, a Spotify companion. And it is it's going to go like in chronological order. Uh, yeah, for the most part. Can we do that? Yeah, we can do that. Where it kind of starts out as we're talking. Like sure. It'll go, it'll go in order with our story so you can kind of hear from day one to the last day. Well, first track we haven't talked about yet, but it's uh, the first track's going to be uh, Buddy and Bobby. That's the first thing I could find. I couldn't, I couldn't put that last track on there. It doesn't exist on Spotify. So Buddy had made several connections through another KDAV DJ country singer named Ben Hall, who Buddy often backed on stage during his live performances as well. It was around this time that a couple of pivotal moments would happen in the image and musical evolution of Buddy Holly. First off, in his senior year of high school, Buddy's eyes were tested and he was found to have 20 over 800, or however you say it, vision. That's four times the requirement to be legally blind. 20 slash 800. (laughs) Thus, he got glasses, although they were not the famous black horn rims that would make him so iconic, but he got glasses. The, those glasses, the one, what's funny is the, the really iconic black horn rim glasses that we all know him by. He only got those like within the last less than a year of his death or something. Okay. He had these half frames up until then. Okay. And actually, you can see out of his three Ed Sullivan appearances, he's only wearing the black horn rims and oh boy, in the last one. Okay. The other two, he's wearing the half frames. And there's another, uh, uh, there's footage of him playing the Arthur Murray dance party and he's got his half frames, but that's that's in the future. That's in the future. Okay. Okay. The second thing that was pivotal was he got his first electric guitar. Okay. But it was not the Sunburst Fender Strat that everyone would associate with him. You know, it was like his favorite guitar ever. Um, this first one was a Gibson Les Paul Gold Top. Oh, wow. Hell yeah. There's actually a picture of it uh, somewhere online that I found. But what Ello and Ella Holly didn't know was that their baby boy, their golden child, their burgeoning country western star had another life that they weren't aware of. You see, for a little while now, Buddy had been sneaking out to the family car after midnight and slowly rolling the radio dial until it captured station KWKH from Shreveport, Louisiana. After which he'd lay across the seat, legs crossed and toes tapping, to something that many West Texans feared and even forbade at the time. Black music. Oh no, say it isn't so. Yes, he loved it. Oh, wow. You know, there's some foreshadowing, but it's going to shape some things, right? hugely yeah and that's where we'll pick up on our part two Ah, of the buddy holly there we go series yeah that's awesome yeah so again thank you guys for listening hopefully you're still listening to this i want this to be a thing where someone can go someone who doesn't even know who don of mantis is can just be like i want to know a lot about buddy holly and they can just type that in on search engine in a podcast deal and then our name will come up and even if you don't like us just i hope you enjoy 
the information that we provide in this series on Buddy Holly. Like we said before, I mean, to talk about Buddy Holly is to talk about the genesis of a lot of the music that you love, or most of it, if not all. So, yeah, we, we want to do it. It's due diligence, and Joe's done an incredible job. We Way more than that than that we have for you, or that Joe has for you on Buddy Holly. Yeah, you know, before I did this, I searched Buddy Holly in podcasts, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of podcasts about aspects of his life or certain sections of his life or a shitload of them about the, you know, the day the music died and the plane crash. There's, but you know, I really didn't find one that I thought really covered everything, like his whole journey from like birth to plane crash. And, uh, I just wanted to do that. You know, I wanted to try to, to put something out there that kind of encapsulated everything, you know, as much as we can. Now I did have to leave some stuff out. This would have been a, like a, a, just a three month podcast if we would have covered everything. But, um, I really, I really tried to do uh, as best I could. And you painted a, a great picture. He's laying in the, in the car, tapping his feet to the block of music. Yeah. We'll elaborate on that, uh, next week. So again, thank you for, uh, listening to our podcast about buddy. Yeah. Thank you. We will talk to you guys next time. Be on the lookout for that Spotify playlist. Let me tell you about some fellas I know Named Ivan, Sam, and Joe They got themselves a little podcast, you know They talk about everything under the sun That they find interesting, spooky, or fun They sure ain't trying to impress no one Remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of mantis They talk about killers, monsters and cults French mates from hell, disappeared folks Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes They try to make every story extra nice by adding their own ginger spice Not one time or two, but thrice right, right, right. The remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti Now I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell Cause there sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell this old world's as weird as hell. But hell, even if nobody listened, you know they'd maintain a fine disposition. Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission. The remedy to too much time on your hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Too much time on your hands is take a little listen to the dawn